Disinformation is one of the biggest buzzwords of our era. The internet, though an amazing resource for truth and connectivity, is also a powerful tool for spreading lies from the ridiculous to the outright dangerous. What continually causes people to distrust proven expertise and turn to conspiracy theories? Why will some people believe anything? Hello and good evening. Welcome to the program. I'm Liz Brailsford, President and CEO of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Tonight, we are so excited to welcome Kelly Weil, Daily Beast reporter and conspiracy theory expert. Her book, Off the Edge, Flat Earthers, Conspiracy Culture and Why People Will Believe Anything, expands on today's conspiratorial moment with origins earlier than many of us might imagine. You can order copies of Kelly's book, Off the Edge, from our normal bookstore partner in Terabing Book books, pardon me, to support this fantastic local bookstore. If you're not a member of the World Affairs Council, please join us. I'd love to meet you in person. Come join our community of informed and engaged citizens, and you can check out our website on df at dfwworld.org. The council is committed to providing a safe environment within our capacity for our community members. We're really excited to continue our in-person programming. We will be doing about uh, once a month or twice a month our continued virtual programming, but mostly we'll be in person. We want to have you with us. We have updated our mask policy. Uh, for our in-person events to match the recent CDC guidelines that have been released. So you can go to our website at dfwworld.org to see our most up-to-date information on our health and safety practices and our complete event list. This evening, we have Los Angeles-based journalist and author, also specialized in conspiracy theories, as well as subcultures and alternative communities. Anna Merlin is currently a reporter at Motherboard, a division of Vice. Previously, she worked as a reporter at Gizmodo Media Group, a senior reporter at Jezebel, and a staff writer at the Village Voice and the Dallas Observer. Yes, she lived with us here in Dallas for a few years. So her reporting has also appeared in Rolling Stone, BBC Travel, Topic, and the New York Times. According to her bio, Anna has been accused of being both a lizard person and a CIA agent, agent but never at the same time. It's wonderful to have both our author, Kelly Weil, and also Anna join us tonight. Ladies, I know this is going to be a fascinating conversation. We're so happy to have you here. Thanks for joining us again. And Anna, I'm going to let you take over from here. Thanks, Liz. Can everyone hear me okay? Yes. Great. So as previously mentioned, our guest this evening is Kelly, a journalist who has explored conspiracy theories, the fringe groups that spread these ideas, and why people get caught up in the world of so-called alternative facts. Um, Kelly Weil is a reporter for the Daily Beast. She has worked for Politico and has been featured on ABC's Nightline, CNN, and Al Jazeera. Uh, as a leading journalistic voice on conspiracy theories, Kelly has explored how misinformation spreads on social media and how everyday Americans turn to the outlandish during times of profound change, social upheaval, and deep-seated distrust. 
Her new book is Off the Edge, Flat Earthers, Conspiracy Culture, and Why People Will Believe Anything, in which she examines how the Flat Earth movement has gained momentum in recent years and how different conspiracy theory groups overlap. Kelly, thank you for joining us. We have to stop meeting like this. <laughs> uh, I'll, <laughs> happy to. Thanks for having me. By which I mean, uh, periodically, Kelly and I meet up and talk about the weirdest folks we've ever met. Um, and then we go back to our lives and in between everything just gets weirder. So maybe we're the problem. It definitely, you know, correlation, causation, something like that. I'm starting to suspect. Um, so this is such a good book. It is so empathetic. It is so funny where it's appropriate. It is serious where it needs to be. Uh, it has such a deep sense of history. Uh, but before we get to the book itself, I want to start with the question that I think everyone always asks and I want to get it out of the way, which is why cover the flat earth movement at all? Why does it matter? I think I was drawn to Flat Earth because it's such a case study in why really people will believe anything. Mm. You know, there are such a range of conspiracy theories that you can pick and choose from, and some are more plausible than others, and some fit more comfortably alongside uh, accepted reality. But Flat Earth is so out there that when somebody accepts it, they have to sort of toss away all their previously held knowledge and start over again. And mm. I was interested in how exactly that process worked and what it said about our capacity for belief. Absolutely. You know, covering this stuff, I can't count the number of times that someone has told me that I'm amplifying a conspiracy theory or that I'm giving life to it just by covering it, you know, and if I ignore it, it it'll just go away, which I'm sure you've heard. Um, so why cover conspiracy theories more broadly and how do you do it in sort of an effective way? when, as you write about in the book, so many of these folks want to be covered, they want to be amplified, and even sort of negative coverage is kind of beneficial for spreading their message. How do you navigate that? It's tough to navigate, really, um, because there is some truth to it. But I think conspiracy theories are so potent and so politically powerful right now that we need to examine both their role in everyday life and how people get into them. So when I'm reporting both in this book and as my uh, daily work as a journalist, I try and think about why exactly I'm covering something. Am I covering a conspiracy theory because it's weird and sensational and I know people will read it, you know, kind of for the the lull factor? Or does it say something more broadly about how um, we should understand ourselves as a political society or something urgent about current events? And um, having spent enough time among flat earthers, I thought that their story really communicated something about how we believe. And that's what I tried to put forward in this book. Right. And how we choose what to believe and what sources are trustworthy. And as you say, when we sort of start over and we throw everything out the window, where does that lead us? Um, and of course, you know, one thing that is so amazing about your book is that it has such a deep sense of history. Also, a lot of conspiracy coverage tends to act as though it started in 2016, that every conspiracy theory is somehow promulgated by Donald Trump, which we sort of know is not true. And Flat Earth is such a fascinating example of that because as you write, you know, some of these theories go back literally centuries. Um, but of course, you know, we live in a pretty uh, technologically advanced time these days and people could, you know, theoretically uh, check any number of sources to confirm that the Earth is round if they wanted to. Uh, so I wonder, you know, is there anything that links the sort of 
centuries old flat earth groups with their modern day counterparts? Do, is there anything these groups of people have in common, even though they're separated by time? Absolutely. I mean, the underlying thought processes of conspiratorial thinking haven't really changed that much. And they don't even vary that much from person to person. That's one thing that I was encountering when I was doing the research on this book is that it's easy to say like conspiracy theorists are tinfoil hatters and they're really weird, but actually most of us believe in some kind of conspiracy theory. And that thinking emerges often when uh, we feel like we don't have enough information or we're uncomfortable with the information we have and we go looking for alternative answers and sometimes the communities that form around those alternatives. And so when I started looking at the historical origins of Flat Earth, which for people who haven't read the book, it um, has a lot of its roots in the 1840s. Uh, this one guy who ran a failed commune and then pivoted to selling miracle cures and then pivoted to um, inventing Flat Earth and promoting it on a lecture circuit. I realized that these were recognizable figures. They reminded me often of modern YouTubers or modern people you'd see promoting conspiracy theories. And I think the reason for that is that people were drawn to conspiracy theories for the same underlying reasons as they are today. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Um, so Alfie is, Alfie Joseph asked the question, who's promoting conspiracy theories as a fact, despite a complete lack of evidence? Why and how do they continue to spread false information? So this might be a good place, for instance, to talk about how are you seeing these theories being promulgated online? Where are they being promulgated? How are these folks finding each other? So um, how... This, the field sort of changed a bit in the past few years because conspiracy theorists, as I explore in this book, have always been really early adapters of technology. And the originators that I mentioned were kind of some of the first self-publishers. And there was um, a flat earth group in the early 1900s that were some of the earliest pioneers of long range radio. So these days I'm seeing uh, conspiracy theorists really have a very savvy understanding of social media. Mm -hmm. um, and around 2014, when Flat Earth started booming again online, a lot of that was YouTube-based. And conspiracy theorists realized that their videos performed very well in YouTube's recommendation algorithm. And you can kind of understand why they were sensational and attention-grabbing. So people at the time would saturate YouTube with these videos. In 2019, YouTube changed its algorithm, so it was a little harder to promote those videos there. But people pivoted with, you know, with the status quo, and now I see a lot of flat Earth on Facebook. I see it on Telegram channels. People are looking for ways that they can communicate with other groups and get in contact with um, people who might already have an affinity for conspiracy theories. So. They're, they're reaching out to people who might already be interested. Right. And who are those people that might already be interested? Have you identified sort of any commonalities among folks who buy into Flat Earth specifically? Who are they? Mm -hmm. I think people who get into Flat Earth tend to have been interested in a previous conspiracy theory. And that makes sense. You know, you don't jump feet first into something like Flat Earth, which is so out there. So when I ask flat earthers, what were you into before? A lot tell me um, some less wild conspiracy theories. A lot have told me that they got into it via 
9-11 trutherism. And they were watching videos about 9-11 on YouTube and flat earth videos got recommended. Um, other people were watching more conventional um, uh, or better known, I should say, conspiracy channels like uh, Alex Jones and Infowars. And that paves the way for them. So um, the commonality, I think, is just a willingness to believe this kind of thing and a hunger for more and stranger explanations. Yeah, I was saying this to you the other day, but um, flat earthers, even in the conspiracy worlds that we cover, are somewhat harder to find in the wild, or at least people where that's their main thing. You know, like even by the standards of some conspiracy communities, this is, as you say, further, it's further out there, um, which is always fascinating to me is who are the people who are satisfied with the tamer stuff and who are the people who want to go even further into the deep end of the pool, sort of as mm -hmm. it were. Um, oh, go ahead. No, all I was going to say is that often when I've met flat earthers and we talk about their past, they're a little embarrassed of being invested in the lesser things. Yes. I had someone told me, can you believe it? I was listening to Alex Jones before, you know, like it was um, like it was embarrassing to him because he'd moved on. Yeah, that's a very interesting point. <laughs> yeah, Alex Jones, among a lot of these people is considered a little passe. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. So Miles Zitmore has a good question that we should uh, kind of back up to, which is when you say flat earth society, are you referring to a group that literally believes the earth is flat? Or is this the name of a group who holds to various conspiracy theories? Is the Flat Earth Society just about Flat Earth? Sure. So actually, let me break that down even a little bit further. Mm -hmm. The Flat Earth Society is a distinct group within the Flat Earth movement, but they aren't very popular right now. Most Flat Earthers are not members of the Flat Earth Society, which they view as um, uh, an op. They don't really trust the Flat Earth Society and talk to the Flat Earth Society and their, their feelings are a little bit hurt about that trend. But when we talk about Flat Earthers in general, um, yes, they do have this shared belief, which is that Earth is like a pancake. Uh, there's a great picture of it there. Um, and it's surrounded by an ice wall and maybe enclosed in a dome. That's from an event in Dallas two years ago, late 2019. Mm. Um, and uh, on top of that, Flat earthers are very likely to hold um, other conspiracy beliefs. And I think the reason for that is flat earth is such a sprawling theory. It, what it proposes is so vast that it does invite people to tear down their existing beliefs and invite in new ones. And with that new openness, people bring in political conspiracy theories, health conspiracy theories, um, you know, theories of government and religion. So flat earth is one theory specifically, but the movement has a lot of um, other interests that work alongside it as well. Right. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. Dallas Baptist University is a global Christ-centered institution whose students are making an impact in business, law, medicine, education, public service, and the list goes on. DBU is honored to sponsor the Global IQ podcast and to offer a significant scholarship for World Affairs Council members towards a master's in international studies. For further information about this scholarship or about DBU in general, email Lee Bratcher at leeb at dbu.edu. Uh, and you get at this so well in the book, and this is something I've also seen in my work, is that uh, 
there, there is no sort of siphoning off conspiracy communities from one another. It's not like some people just believe in flat earth. Some people just believe in 9-11 trutherism. These communities really fuse together, don't they? There's a lot of overlap. Yeah, you had, um, you coined the term the conspiracy singularity, which I love. And I keep using that phrase because it's so useful. Mm-hmm. Um, and because I think there has been a growing overlap in conspiracy uh, communication lately. Um, It's not to say that conspiracy theorists were never in communication with each other, they always were, but something about the way that they're networking right now really seems to have um, caused the boundaries, I think, to bleed between conspiracy theories. So even in like 2017, when I was on Flat Earth Facebook pages, they seemed a little bit more on message, um, more dedicated to the theory. Whereas these days, I think they have a lot more um, efforts at outreach or they're talking about vaccine conspiracy theories or um, things adjacent to QAnon. And when I go on a QAnon Telegram channel, I'm watching them post about Flat Earth. And I feel like that interchange, although it's always existed, I, I think it's happening at an accelerated rate right now. Yeah, I think that's very true. And I would propose to you, and I wonder what you think about this, that there are two things that sort of fed into this. One is obviously that the Trump presidency kind of uh, helped folks find each other, you know, (laughs) who might have been kind of enlivened by that and by the specific conspiracy theories that he promoted. And it sort of helps these communities who enjoyed his his work uh, find each other. And then the other thing seemingly is COVID that the coronavirus pandemic has created a sort of uniting set of circumstances that uh, has sort of created the need for a more coherent kind of global Mm -hmm. uh, system of thought uh, to kind of unite a bunch of theories together. I think that's very true. I think that's a really good way of putting it. You know, one thing you can say about COVID is that it pushed a lot of people online and forced them to, you know, find these communities on there. Um, which is true, but I think you're right to point out that it's not entirely a technological issue. You know, when I blame a YouTube or a Facebook for promoting conspiracy theories, it's not entirely on them when, um, as you say, so much of this conspiracy theorizing is becoming really common in mainstream politics. Mm -hmm. It's becoming embedded in certain Republican identities, for instance, or it's becoming embedded in um, certain rhetoric around health. And so I think um, we are seeing these once fairly fringe beliefs becoming a lot more centered in the way that people navigate the world. I mean, you have a really interesting example of this in the book, which is that you wake up one morning or doing your usual rounds of your conspiracy theory social media and you see a video getting widely shared by a group called America's Frontline Doctors, who are a particularly kind of fringe COVID denying group of purported physicians who actually have never treated COVID or been anywhere near the front lines. And so you're noting that this is kind of making the rounds and then you check Twitter. And at that time, President Trump was still on Twitter and he was sharing this Mm -hmm. video, this incredibly fringe video. So, you know, it's the sort of example, this really concrete example of the way that things went from the supposed fringe to the supposed mainstream, you know, in minutes as opposed to years or decades as previously happened. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think it's so interesting because that trend so quickly outstripped any, any kind of guardrails that people had, you know, 
Um, I think you and I are very familiar with the um, journalistic beat of saying, you know, actually this video is wrong because X, Y, and Z. Right. Well, that kind of fact checking is just, you know, goes completely out the window when um, you have the most famous person in the world promoting this kind of thing. Uh, so what you could previously say like, hang on, let's pump the brakes. This is a little too weird. Already 10 steps ahead of us. And uh, it, was, um, it just kind of showed the futility, I think of that sort of argument. Yeah, it's a really, it's an interesting time when information spreads that fast. Um, so there's a question in the question box that I think is very important because it comes up all the time. Bethany is asking, do you feel like Twitter and Facebook and of course YouTube at all are doing enough to combat conspiracy theories and misinformation? What's your feeling about that? It's a tough question and it's a good question. Um, and I mean... I would say broadly, no, they're not doing enough, but it becomes a lot more challenging when you ask what exactly they should be doing. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, one answer that's easy for me to give is that when a YouTube or a Facebook has an algorithm that artificially promotes things like Flat Earth, which is what YouTube was doing from 2014 to 2019, well, they should change that algorithm because that doesn't show an objective sampling of what's on YouTube. It shows what their internal systems promote. And YouTube, to its credit, got a lot of pushback and in 2019 changes algorithm. It's a lot harder to accidentally stumble on flat earth. Mm -hmm. But I think it's very challenging when we talk about things like deplatforming, uh, you know, barring certain topics. Um, sometimes it works. Alex Jones got deplatformed from most social media. He said it would make him bigger than ever and it didn't. You know, his site is way down the tubes in traffic. Mm -hmm. um, but where I get a little bit cagey is talking about the removal of specific content. Um, it becomes very subjective. I think it can often swing back the other direction. Facebook is notorious for when it um, bans like a far right page, it looks for a uh, apparently like an equal and opposite left-wing page to ban. And, you know, my own biases being of the left, I tend to disagree with some of those counter bans. So um, I think it's challenging. Um, they can absolutely do more, but I would not be want to be the person to draw the line and say, this is exactly how much they should do. It's so tricky, isn't it? And especially because as we know, um, as journalists, the main thing that social media companies are responsive to is public pressure. Right. And so, you know, I'm sure you've seen this. I've seen this in my work. They'll ban something uh, like a page promoting, you know, drinking bleach as a cure mm -hmm. for various diseases. Uh, because drinking bleach is in the news and the idea that you shouldn't drink bleach is, you know, back in the news. And then when that goes away, that kind of content can kind of creep back in. Um, and there's there's very little sort of consistent enforcement, as you're pointing out. And enforcement is often directly tied to particularly how Facebook wants to be seen. And at times when Facebook is, for instance, you know, getting dragged in front of Congress again to answer for, you know, the ways that uh, it subverted democracy, uh, they tend to be more uh, heavy handed about enforcement versus other times. So I think as you're saying, it's not consistent. And so it's hard to say what a consistent, even handed fair enforcement would actually look like. Absolutely. I mean, they, they want to have bipartisan support and mm -hmm. it's often very difficult to maintain that image when, you know, a lot of the conspiracy 
theorizing is politically loaded on one side. So it's, I mean, their company, their main objective is making money. And I think it's um, hard for them to square that with having you know, a perfectly neutral and safe space. Absolutely. Speaking of making money, I actually think this is a really important thing to talk about, which is we know a lot of conspiracy peddlers, Alex Jones, chief among them, find ways to monetize their theories and their content. And that tends to be, you know, a pretty major feature of, of what they're doing all day. Um, how does that work in Flat Earth? How are you seeing people monetizing Flat Earth ideas? So a lot of this originally came down to that incredible um, lead that Flat Earthers had on uh, YouTube. Hmm. People realized that if you made flat earth videos there, you could get a pretty good, big viewership. And that wasn't even limited to flat earthers. I think a lot of mainstream video creators realized sort of cynically that they could make a flat earth video. So Logan Paul did it. I think Shane Dawson did it. And, and listen, they're allowed to, but you know, it's, um, there is a very savvy understanding that you can get clicks from this topic. Mm. Um, but from there on, on if I, I like to think of like social uh, online money-making schemes as sort of a pyramid scheme or a multi-level marketing thing. Cause it's, there's always, you know, the one person at the top who's making a lot of money and then people grubbing for scraps underneath. And so underneath those maybe more disingenuous um, YouTube voices, there are conspiracy influencers, there's flat earth influencers who do make a living, maybe not a huge living, but enough of one, um, being on YouTube and having a Patreon, that sort of thing. And then there are, um, there are a number of like flat earth crafts people. I'm so glad that uh, just before they brought up that picture of a guy selling these lit up uh, flat earth maps, because that guy sells them and they go for thousands, you know, right. it's, it's his, that I'm not sure if it's his only job. It's his, um, it's his craft and they're well-made to my yeah. knowledge. Um, That's a nice but man. It's, you know what? Yeah. Some of them are like the size of coffee tables. Some of them have clocks on them and, but there's a whole economy of flat earth merchandisers, books and t-shirts and there's also conferences, which I think are very big in this world. Yeah. Um, these tickets will go for hundreds of dollars and people will go and they'll, you know, they'll save up for a conference. They'll go, they'll buy three books and two t-shirts and it keeps the money moving. Um, so there is money to be had in this world um, if people are you know, just um, cynical enough, I think. Absolutely. And in the conspiracy world more broadly, especially conferences, mm -hmm. I think that's a super important point because they are so expensive compared to, you know, <laughs> uh, going to the movies or something that you might get more out of. Um, so there's a question here from Mackie that I want to kind of segue into, which is, um, you know, do you find that all these folks really believe their theories or do some of them, you know, just claim them to get attention, which is something that, uh, I get asked a lot as well with various conspiracy beliefs. Um, but in one, you know, very grim case, you have a pretty good example of someone who believed in this theory so ardently that they died for it, which uh, was stuntman Mike Hughes, who of course died while filming a stunt in Barstow, a homemade rocket launch designed to prove that the earth was flat. So, you know, when people ask you, uh, how can these folks really believe this? Aren't they just kind of pretending uh, do you, does Hughes immediately come to mind? You know, Hughes is actually, 
I feel like I'd answer this question the opposite way around mm. um, because a lot of these folks, yes, they absolutely do believe it and they suffer for their beliefs. They get socially ostracized, some of them lose jobs, et cetera. And Hughes, um, for folks who don't know him, he was a uh, sort of an evil Knievel type stuntman. He was interested in launching rockets. And he had this, for a long time, he was one of the more visible faces of the flat earth movement because he had this idea that he would launch himself up in a rocket high enough so that he could take a picture of flat earth or curved earth. And it went horribly wrong. He died in February, 2020 in a rocket crash, um, which incidentally, it was, he was doing that launch to get himself further up toward the point where he could do the picture of the earth, but he couldn't see it at that point. Um, but What's weird about Mike is that after he died, there started emerging narratives just from one person from his um, from his agent who said Mike really wasn't into flat earth. He was doing it for attention, which is weirdly, that's the thing that flat earthers are accused of all the time and which I almost never find that they are faking it for attention. I usually find that they're very genuine. Uh, and I thought that was interesting because I'd known Mike for a while. He was very much into conspiracy theories. And I started talking to his friends and family who said, no, nah, he was into this. Like, we're not even flat earthers and he, we couldn't talk about it. And I think the takeaway I had after talking to a lot of them, the, the best explanation I got was from one of his friends who was there with him on the day of his death, who said, you know, Mike was always curious and he was testing these things. And he um, he got into flat earth, uh, you know, talking about this rocket launch. He wasn't totally convinced, but during the process of getting involved in the flat earth world became fully convinced. And I guess that is how I'd answer the initial question is just that, you know, belief isn't always binary. Um, and that although most flat earthers, I think, are very convinced of their theory, there are people who are still treating it sort of as something to be experimented with and tested. And that's sort of what Mike was doing, even though you don't need to test the roundness of the earth because we know. And so in that respect, you know, it was tragic, even if he was still looking for answers. That must have been difficult for you to cover too, because this is obviously somebody that you had that you had written about, that you had corresponded with for any length of time, you know, and you and you write about this in the book, you had known that at some point someone was going to get hurt testing these theories. So yeah, what was what was that like for you? It was um it was really not great. I think <laughs> I mean, outside of my initial just shock, because mm. this crash was filmed, you know there were people on the ground and filming and live streaming when it happened. It was just a, a very little dignity or anything about that. Um, but after that, I felt very, I think, defensive of him sure. because there were a lot of people online making, I think really maybe obvious jokes, but they struck having known Mike and actually liked him. They struck me as really crass, you know, calling him a flat, flat earther because he crashed into the ground or talking about like, oh, he nominated him for a Darwin award. And he was an unusual person, but he was not a stupid person. And that's what got me about the response to his people saying, oh yeah, he's a dummy. He did this stunt and of course he died. And he, he wasn't dumb, you know, it's, it's not easy to build those rockets. So um, yeah, it was, it was a weird place of, um, having, you know, empathized with this guy pretty deeply to find myself sort of on the opposite 
side and almost, I know a lot of flat earthers complain that everyone is cruel to them about their beliefs and maybe in a second or third hand way, kind of feeling the same. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's a very confusing sort of place to find yourself when you've covered somebody this sort of extensively. Um, Somebody, Richard is asking a really basic, but I think very important question, which is, can you speak to the sort of emotional needs that conspiracy theories might satisfy? You know, what are they doing for folks on sort of um, an emotional or like personal level? That's a really good question. Um, I don't think there's ever one single answer. There are a few things that conspiracy theories address. I think often they are a response to a perceived threat. You know, people um, won't like the situation they're confronted with and they want to believe something different. They want to believe um, that, you know, a a pandemic isn't real or um, they'll even propose, you know, nefarious world governments. And I think even though that sounds scary, it suggests that someone's in control rather than that events can be scary and random. Um, So that's one thing. I also think that um, conspiracy theories like Flat Earth speak to people's needs for community. Um, Mm. And a lot of conspiracy theorists I've met have been isolated in some way or maybe disenfranchised. A lot of them have, a lot of Flat Earthers at least have unstable employment. And they're looking for a group with which they identify and a group that makes them feel good. Mm-hmm. And because these conspiracy theories aren't just beliefs, they're often social movements, um, that theory comes to represent a lot more for them. And in that way, I think is really emotionally satisfying. Definitely. And I think we've seen that a lot, especially with um, things like QAnon. There are a lot of elders in the QAnon mm-hmm. movement. There are a lot of folks who might be homebound or otherwise socially isolated who uh, QAnon gave them a community, a sense of meaning, a sense of purpose, a sort of like heroic narrative to be part of this belief that they were battling against these kind of global evildoers. Um, you know, all of which is, yeah, tremendously sort of enticing. Um, you know, there is one thing though that you really get into in the book and that I appreciated a lot, which is that you talk about the ways that there is a really direct and pretty disturbing pipeline from flat earth beliefs to things like Holocaust denial and other really sort of hateful, very extreme ideas. And I know you get into this in the book, but like, what's your best theory about what's happening there? What is the flat earth to Holocaust denial pipeline? Mm -hmm. The first thing I would say is that like flat earth isn't inherently anti-Semitic, you know, it doesn't need to be, but because it doesn't need to be, I think it's even more tragic that it often ends up that way. Mm. I think, so conspiracy theories often work and almost like a team mentality is a kind of an us versus them where you're either a part of this in group the you know privileged few who know the truth and are fighting for uh their version of reality versus the out group which is everybody else who's either blind or actively maliciously participating in a cover-up right and that um combativeness i think has often been deployed against uh, scapegoats or minority communities and or um, proposition throughout history. And very frequently 
past few centuries, that's Jewish people. Um, so it's, you know, you don't have to look hard to find instances where Jewish communities have been used as scapegoats. Right. Um, and I think that conspiracy framework, that skeleton of belief has been around enough that, um, that this sort of anti-Semitic underpinning can very easily be grafted onto newer conspiracy theories. And so you'll find that both people who were maybe anti-Semites before they found flat earth are trying to smuggle in older conspiracy theories about Jewish people because it fits fairly well with the structure of a modern conspiracy theory. And you'll also find flat earthers who don't intend to be anti-Semitic, but accidentally invoke that because it's so saturated, I think, in the conspiracy world. And those are, you know, I don't intervene very much in flat earth because I don't think it's my place, but those are the times when I'll step in and just sort of ask someone what they're saying. And do you know what you're saying? Do you know where that belief comes from? And sometimes they backtrack because they know they got caught saying something bigoted. And sometimes they're like, oh, whoa, I didn't know that at all. <laughs> um, so it's, you know, it's, um, it doesn't need to be a pipeline to Holocaust denial and it still ends up being that. You actually use a really interesting example in the book, which is that you're talking to somebody who uses the metaphor poisoning the well, mm -hmm. which is of course a reference to a medieval anti-Semitic conspiracy theory, the idea that Jews were poisoning the wells of Europe. And so it's, again, I think, as you point out, a really good example of the ways that some of this sort of bigoted language just has seeped into the groundwater so much that even folks without like an amazing sense of history uh, promote those ideas. Um, kind of grafting onto that, Bethany is asking, have you ever felt unsafe around conspiracy theorists who have maybe more political or dangerous beliefs? And this, of course, you also cover uh, folks who are inherently dangerous, like the Proud Boys. And so, yeah, where, where do you fall on sort of safety when you're covering conspiracy communities? Um, I've always felt safe around flat earthers. Uh, mm -hmm. And I mean, part of the reason is that, you know, I'm, when I go to these conferences, there's a ton of people around. I have at this point enough people that I kind of know, I don't really feel at risk. Um, but, you know, it's um, a lot of, to your point, a lot of more explicitly hateful groups still run on conspiratorial ideologies. So I've, you know, been to uh, far right marches and that kind of thing. And, um, you know, I don't know, maybe I'm a wuss. I don't tend to put myself uh, anywhere that I feel especially threatened. Um, but covering these folks, you know, you do take say digital precautions, mm -hmm. you know, we try and um, wipe personal information from online and, um, you know, I, um, I I don't know if this is kind of a blase way to put it, but like I've been doxxed. So like my phone number's out there so many times, I just sort of, I'm like, okay, well, it's been out for a decade and nothing bad has happened. So, um, you know, you just, with the understanding that people are not always gonna like you, um, you just take the precautions you can and try. I, I think the only other thing is like, try not to saber rattle. Like I know some, journalists on extremist beats will kind of go poking at these people. And I don't do that on my weekends, you know, mm -hmm. I'll reach out and do my coverage. And then I don't really engage outside that. I don't need that in my personal life. 
I know exactly what you're talking about. I've seen that too. And boy, I yeah. don't understand it at all. I don't think it's a good use of your free time. I certainly <laughs> don't. Not a good use of your mental space, but. <laughs> right. Um, so I think uh, I'm going through some of these questions and I think there, there are two from John and Alfie that are sort of the same general idea, which is uh, the difficulty, if not impossibility of convincing somebody mm -hmm. that a conspiratorial belief is wrong. Right. Um, so what is the key to combating claims that have a complete lack of evidence like flat earth? Is there a good way to debunk conspiracy theories? Like, what does that look like? What's your thought? It's really challenging. And part of the reason for that is that conspiracy beliefs like flat earth are not powerful because they're the most logical explanation. Of course, they're not logical, but because they have those um, emotional components that we spoke about before, they're providing things for people. So I don't typically try and debate flat earth with people. Part of that's because I'm a journalist. I don't really want to get involved in their theory, but part of it is because um, what I've found when I talk to people who've been in flat earth and have left is they said they had the most, excuse me, the sort of the light bulb came on when they were having a conversation with people they trusted, um, mm -hmm. people they developed a, some kind of relationship with. Um, and those people weren't interested in having a, you know, a heated debate with them where one side will be proven wrong, but and having a discussion with them. Mm -hmm. And I think in that context of trust, you can start bringing up factual information. Now it's tough because I think a conspiracy theorist needs to be willing to change their mind. You can't force it. But the other component I would say is that if a conspiracy theory is providing part of someone's identity or their community, trying to figure out what alternatives they can have you know, they're going to lose their flat earth friends if they um, recant on the movement. So what kind of, you know, social support can we provide them on their way out? And um, I saw this thing I read it the other day and I don't know if it was just someone making it up, but they said that their aunt had been super into QAnon and she got out because she got really into K-pop, you know, Korean pop music, which has its own attendant community that's really dedicated and I thought like that is actually a pretty good model for how someone's need for connection can just be moved from this awful thing to this thing that's totally fine. I saw another one uh, where somebody was claiming that they had helped a loved one out of, I think, QAnon because they got really hooked on Wordle. Um, you know, just all of that, that puzzle solving like energy went into Wordle. I don't know if that's mm -hmm. true, but I do, I have found like a remarkably similar thing to what you found in terms of just people's need for connection and community can be sort of repurposed, but that, you know, you are best off trying to uh, not convince strangers on the internet that their beliefs are wrong, but to focus on your loved ones, to focus on the people who, you know, who trust you and that you have a connection with. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. There's so many good questions here and we won't get to all of them. Um, I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to, um, ask you a critical one, which is from Chip. And he's essentially saying, you know, were you a little too easy on Fox, OAN, Newsmax? Do you think that they bear sort of more blame than maybe they're getting for promoting conspiracy theories? Um, you know, like how, how culpable 
are the sort of conservative news agencies, especially Fox. I think they are culpable. You know, I don't get into that so much in this book. And part of the very obvious reason is I filed it in September 2020 and only, you know, made a couple uh, contemporary changes, you know, doing the edits in January 2021. Um, So insofar as, you know, talking about how those intersected with Flat Earth, not all that much. Mm -hmm. That said, you know, when we talked before about how these theories, although it's easy to blame them on social media, they're really being propped up by um, by more powerful institutions. I think we absolutely have to take into account how uh, mainstream Republican media supports that. Right. Um, for a lot of people, that is their main information source, and especially for older generations with Fox. And you mentioned previously, a lot of people who are into QAnon are maybe more isolated seniors. So for a lot of people um, ingesting that information, it really is their their main source. Mm-hmm. Um, and yes, I mean, I, I, I frankly just don't have anything good to say about what, what they're doing in terms of mainstreaming these conspiracy theories um, because we're seeing just a direct pipeline from what uh, what 4chan says to Tucker Carlson two weeks later to, uh, uh, you know, a Trump, he doesn't tweet anymore, but he has those long paragraphs on his website, yes. one of those. Um, and I think it's a, a very uh, worrying system. And I think it's a lot harder to dismantle than asking YouTube to change the algorithm. Absolutely. So, um, a couple more kind of detail questions here, and then I have a big picture question for you. So um, Bethany is asking about deep fakes and, you know, the ways that deep fakes are being used to promulgate hoaxes online. Uh, is that something that you have been looking into at all, like the sort of problem of deep fakes, the potential that deep fakes could be used to promote conspiracy theories, hoaxes, other kind of um, bad information? Is that something you think about? It is something I think about, but I've actually found in, so I'm not, I'm not a tech journalist primarily. So someone more clued into this could probably give you a different answer. But what I've found is that a lot of conspiracy theories don't need deep fakes. You know, Mm. flat earthers, we have pictures of earth. We've got so many pictures and video and you show them those pictures and they say, oh, those are fake. No, NASA just, you know, invented those. Or right now, um, the uh, war in Ukraine, people are documenting atrocities and you've got Russia's official Twitter account being like, oh, that's not real. No, that's not, you know. Mm -hmm. And so I think because so much conspiracy thinking is, you know, it's motivated thinking. It's not rational. It's coming at information with a preconceived outcome and looking to justify that. I think people are already doing well enough at deceiving themselves with the available tools. I think that's very true. So from here, and let's circle back to Flat Earthers specifically, uh, how are they doing? What's going on with them now? And what do you see sort of uh, the future of Flat Eartherism as being? Is it a fairly stable community? Do they have kind of the same ideas that they promote at the same conferences every year? Are you seeing evolutions in the Flat Earth space? What's going on? 
So on a really granular level, um, there's a little bit of a, a void in Flat Earth right now because the main conference organizer announced it quits. So there, you know, there needs to be somebody to step up and do a lot of the organizing. COVID actually disrupted a bit um, where a lot of the big gatherings weren't happening so much. But that's not to say it's not still chugging along. It is. And um, what I think is most worrying about the way that it's progressing is that, you know, to our earlier point, it is cross-pollinating with mm. other conspiracy theories right now. Um, just the other day, I was um, in Telegram looking up something awful and completely unrelated, but for my job, and people were just spamming flat earth memes underneath. And that's not something I saw five years ago. Um, although I don't think flat earth is ever going to become fully mainstream. I think it is weird enough that it will remain fringe. I also think it's going to be a little um, more, uh, more mainstream in the conspiracy world. And because it's such a useful tool in allowing people to believe anything, I think it will let people um, ingest more politically radical conspiracy theories. Mm -hmm. It will you know, enable people to believe things that are a lot more imminently dangerous and pernicious. So that would be my, uh, my, <laughs> my pessimistic prediction there. Yeah, I, I never have any, any optimistic things to say either. And it's hard, it's always a real downer. <laughs> well, you know, uh, everything's getting worse. See you later. Um, how do your sources feel about your book? How do your subjects feel about the book? Have they read it? Do they feel um, accurately represented? What's, uh, what's been the feedback? I've got a few things. One from someone who's not a flat earther, but who is, you know, um, adjacent to a flat earther I talked to and who is, you know, honestly just happy that I wrote about it. Mm -hmm. I have one guy who's in there who I frankly don't believe wrote the book, but who is very upset. Um, and then I have one guy who said, hey, listen, you know, obviously I don't agree with you, but this raised some soul searching that we need to do as a community. Um, mm -hmm. And I think I was grateful for that response because, I mean, listen, we've never agreed on this most basic principle and uh, this is not a pro flat earth book and I don't expect flat earthers to come away agreeing with it, sure. but I hope that they see themselves represented in this. And although we don't agree, I hope that they feel that they were accurately represented. And I hope if even a couple can read it and you know it sparks some thinking, I'll be happy. It's so tricky, isn't it? Because especially when you spend so much time around these people, you really want to not feel, have them feel like you're making fun of them. That mm -hmm. came up for me a lot when I'm writing about these folks is even when I think their beliefs are dangerous or ridiculous, I want them to uh, know that I'm not misquoting them or misrepresenting mm -hmm. them. And it's so difficult here because sometimes when you accurately quote their beliefs, they do come away looking a little foolish. It's, mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a hard line to cross, isn't it? Or to walk. It is, yeah. Um, but you know, it's um, one thing that I found when I was interviewing a lot of flat earthers is they'll they'd talk about their theory a little bit, and then they talk more about their emotions and mm -hmm. you know what brought them to it. And I think I probably touch on that more in the book than actually what flat Earth belief is. And so, in that respect, I hope that people can find something human in it. Right. Yeah. The things that are bringing them to it 
sort of personally and socially rather than just the mechanics of the belief. I think that's mm -hmm. very true. There's a more sort of global question from Raymond in our last few minutes, um, which is essentially asking, you know, conspiracy theories in politics have been such a major uh, discussion, especially during the Trump era, but have there always been conspiracy theories in politics? Have we always seen this just crazy overlap between conspiracy communities and political communities or political candidates like uh, Donald Trump at all promoting conspiracy theories? Sort of what's your, what's your feeling about that? Yeah, there have. I mean, not exactly at this pitch, but, and I think you touch on this in your book, but there are letters from George Washington who's responding to someone who sent him a book on the Illuminati. And I thought it was so funny because this guy wrote him like five times, like, did you get the book? Did you read it? Did you like the book about the Illuminati? And George Washington writes back. He's like, yeah, that's, you know, core claims are probably true, whatever. And so it, this, you know, these thought processes of suspicion and of you know, looking for scapegoats and looking for comfort have always been relevant in our politics. And I think they've always been really salient with voter bases, you know, people who want to attach an identity to a political party will also maybe um, believe conspiracy theories about the other party. Mm -hmm. So um, I think they have always played a role in our politics. Uh, I'm not especially old, but I don't remember them being quite this bad during my lifetime, but certainly other people could make an argument. You can make an argument with the Iraq war. That's, you know, a different kind, but um, uh, it was, uh, they're definitely always a powerful force and they are really a powerful force right now. They really are. I mean, I think, um, I think especially as, as we've discussed tonight, COVID, especially sort of supercharged a lot of conspiracy theories and conspiracy communities and particularly like politically motivated ideas about what caused COVID um, have been, yeah, incredibly sort of widespread. It's such an interesting time, isn't it? It is, yeah, because I mean, it's not only are, is it such an unprecedented moment which sends people looking for different information, mm -hmm. um, but it's being so normalized in the mainstream. And, you know, we have all this new technology that helps people discover these theories and spread them and uh, workshop them, frankly. And one, one metaphor that I've been thinking about recently is, uh, you know, the, um, the truck convoy in Canada, the one that did better than the, the one in the US. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about, okay, that wreaks a lot of havoc, but it wasn't actually that many drivers. It was a few people with big trucks and it distorted this idea that they had a lot of support when they weren't really representative of Canadian truckers. And I keep thinking about that in the online world, right? Where in the past, it would have been harder to run into another flat earther accidentally, but now you can find your affinity group and your fairly small group when clustered together in a certain way looks massive and looks powerful and can affect change. And yeah, it's, um, it, that in itself is kind of a distortion of reality. It can also create the perception for those folks in the group that, uh, that they're larger than they actually are and that they're better represented than they actually mm -hmm. are, which can kind of reify and solidify people's beliefs. Um, it's a very interesting circular closed system, as it were. So I want to close with a question that college students always ask me. I don't know why this happens, but every time I speak to a student group, this happens. And so now I'm going to do it to you, okay. which is, 
is there a conspiracy theory that you believe? We know that most Americans believe, or one in three, between 50% and one in three of us believe in at least one conspiracy theory often related to health. Um, are there conspiracy theories that you believe or that you find persuasive? And what do you think makes you susceptible to those in particular? Oh yeah, so Tim McVeigh of the Oklahoma City bombing absolutely had help from other people in the white supremacist movement, has not been alleged in court, has not been supported. And yeah, I'm so convinced of it if you read supporting witnesses from people who saw him um, you know, preparing or saw people preparing in a suspicious way ahead of the bombing. Why am I susceptible to that? Well, because I do a lot of work um, covering the far right from, I think, a very antagonistic point of view. I am opposed to the ideas of white supremacy and violence that Tim McVeigh represented. And so I feel as though there is more that is out there and that is being withheld. And I want that, I want that extra information and I want the feeling of closure to, you know, to know that we have all the information. And although it is a conspiracy theory, it's not proven. It's something that I believe pretty firmly. There is a very famous story about Bill Clinton. You know, the first day he got into office, he said, you know, where are the aliens and where uh -huh. are the JFK? You know, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but I think it speaks to the fact that no matter how powerful or powerless we are, conspiratorial beliefs do something for a lot of us, um, whether it is something as out there as flat earth or whether it's, it's something more mainstream, like a health conspiracy theory, they all kind of uh, act in different ways on us. And I think, you know, you are interviewing people who could not possibly be more different than you. You have never been a flat earther, but it must be startling at times to go into these spaces and realize how much commonality we really all have. Absolutely. It's when you go to a flat earth conference and you realize that you're talking with someone and you like them is striking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it definitely is. I mean, I think too, and I think we're getting ready to close here and thank you so much, Kelly. I think, you know, you do such a good job in this book of talking about the very permeable membrane between the fringe and the mainstream. And you do such a good job of exploring what it is exactly that pushes somebody, sorry, off the edge. <laughs> of the cliff. And I just want to thank you for this book and this work. It has been so helpful for me. Um, and I just, I think you have done just such a great job here. So thank you so much. Thank you. Well, I knew we were going to be in for a treat. I knew uh, this conversation was going to be fascinating and it was, it was completely fascinating. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, this was fabulous and I really appreciate it. Uh, both of you. Thanks for joining us. I also want to remind everyone who's watching us this evening that if you've not joined our council as a member, please join us. We'd love to uh, have you go to our website at dfwworld.org slash membership and go pick up a copy of Kelly's book. You won't be sorry. Uh, I think you all know that now from listening to this very engaging and fascinating conversation. Ladies, thanks again again and everyone have a good night thank you so much thank you